It's Tuesday, April 19th. Welcome to this edition of Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you, technical producer John Hicks, riding shotgun on a uh, post-long weekend edition, a short week edition. And uh, as I said in my Real Talk uh, email message that goes out, technically the Sunday message, but it goes out on a Monday, oftentimes on a long weekend, whatever you were celebrating this weekend, uh, or, or maybe it was just celebrating a long weekend. We hope that you're uh, extended break was all that you hoped it would be. We hope that you're feeling fulfilled and ready to hit the ground running this week. We've got a, a good week in store, uh, including uh, a couple of guests we're really excited about coming up later this week. Calgary's new Poet Laureate coming up tomorrow on Thursday. It's Earth Day, which is going to be a great episode, a sort of a special edition of the show. And, and coming up today, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to a 13-year veteran of uh, firefighting. Uh, she's worked as a paramedic as well. For the last seven, she was on with Leduc Fire services just south of us here in Edmonton in in so-called central Alberta. Megan Wright will join us to explain why she publicly resigned from her position in Leduc in front of Leduc City Council at a city council meeting. Uh, You probably know that there's legal action underway and Megan's not alone on this one. In fact, she's not even named in the initial suit. Uh, She's going to talk to us though about this firefighting culture and, and, and maybe what hasn't been reported in these 90 second stories that you see on the evening news. As is often the case, there's more to it. There's more to the story. There's a lot of background. There's contributing factors. This isn't a decision I'm sure that Megan made to walk away from her dream job without due thought and consideration. Uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation coming up. And then later on in the show, uh, John, you've had an opportunity to go through these photos sent to us by David Litschwager's uh, publicist and the team behind this incredible new book of his octopus seahorse jellyfish. How excited are you for this conversation? I'm an animal lover. You know that. (laughs) And these pictures are absolute. the detail on this. I got to ask him like how, how does he get them? Yeah, it looks like they're studio shots. It's incredible. Of yeah. Some of, as they say, of, of some of the most elusive and mysterious <laughs> sea creatures out there. This this show is a you know big fan of octopuses. We've yeah. done we've done some some features <laughs> on them in the past. Did you see that documentary, My Octopus Teacher? Have of you seen it? Of course I did. Incredible. Amazing, right? But like, what do you do? Do you book a seahorse for a photo shoot? Like these are like up close. You're. It's. I got to ask him. There's going to be a lot of people I know that catch this on the podcast, and this might be the one where later on it's going to be about 35 minutes into this show, maybe about 40 minutes into this show. You might have to switch over to YouTube because you're going to want to see the photos as well, or you can just Google David Lichfager, but very much looking forward to that. Plus, it's the beginning of the week. It's our first show of the week, which means we'll have positive reflections presented by our friends at Kubi Energy and, of course, Every Tuesday, The Leading Edge, presented by our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy. We're going to get into uh, every every week. It's, it's a feature. It's a celebration of a person, a group, or it could even be like an invention, something, some entity that's changing people's lives, that's making planet Earth a better place to be. That's coming up, The Leading Edge, presented by Leading Edge Physio. Now, the show, of course, happens because of the support of sponsors like that, including our friends at Bitcoin Well. I popped in there last week. I was telling you, talking to Benny. Benny's kind of like the face of the, the, the front office, if you will, of Bitcoin Well. He's the one when you show up and you have questions. There's no dumb questions. Benny's probably the guy you're going to talk to. We got into the politics of Bitcoin, which I thought was really fascinating. He's got some great perspective on it. He says it's kind of being spun as like a right-wing conservative thing right now. He goes, you could make the exact argument in the opposite direction of the political spectrum. If you want to go, oh, yeah, really? How, Benny? Well, look him up. You'll find Bitcoin well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. 
Here's Ryan Jesperson. Of course, as is the case, uh, every single show, we want to know where you're at. We want to know how your weekend was. We want to know what's on your mind. We want to know your response to the guests that you're going to be hearing here on the show. You can uh, use our hashtag RealTalkRJ, and of course, uh, you can fire off a note on our live chat as well on YouTube. We do our best to stay on top of it all. The best way to get in touch with us is via email to talk at RyanJesperson.com, and, and that's what several of you have done. And We're going to get into your emails this week, I want to remind you as well, we do give out an email of the month award, and uh, it's a Real Talk official studio issue coffee mug that we award one of them every single month to the email that resonates most with our audience. And of course, uh, we'll get to some of your comments. Uh, we got one from Michelle today, which is great, but I'm going to save it for the Park Power mention, Johnny, because her email has nothing to do with Park Power except for the very end. Yeah. But I like where she goes with it. She, okay. she, she's a happy customer. She's Excited. a happy new customer. So we'll get to it. But she's talking about her upcoming real talk golf classic um i wanted to touch on something out of the gates today and i and i don't have anything profound to offer this but in our home city of edmonton though i know that this story is is certainly impacting people across the country edmonton police confirming uh, on saturday that friday that after our show wrapped on friday a young man a 16 year old kid a grade 10 student outside mcnally high school in our hometown of edmonton on on just this past Friday, succumbed to injuries that were sustained in uh, what I think y- y- you would have to call just just a, a a beating. It was it was an attack. Uh, seven individuals, seven young people, say police, and and there's a lot of information swirling around out there, and there's a lot of it that's unconfirmed. And so I'm going to be really careful in what I say about this, and we're not going to speculate on this. But police uh, suggest that these were seven people from another school and that there was some sort of rivalry and that it may or may not have even had anything to do with this young man. It sounds to me um, and from and we appreciate that people relatively close to the story have been in touch with us and we want to be really careful with the details that we share but this young man that was known as Karen to his friends was essentially swarmed as he sat innocently uh, and by the way by himself waiting uh, to leave school. It sounds like he was waiting for a bus and seven people came up to him. John, the, the details of it are horrific. Uh, he was stabbed multiple times, uh, in, including in, in, in uh, you know, organs. Uh, I mean, these, th- these, this was a horrible beating. There are reports he was shot. He was beaten with a metal rod or other foreign objects. I mean, it was just a horrific situation left there essentially to die. Absolutely horrible. Um, the family that's, that's uh, or at least people speaking on behalf of the family have said that uh, medical professionals, including the first responders that attended the scene, did everything they could, and mm-hmm. he clung to life in hospital. This guy, this 16-year-old kid, was a fighter, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately succumbed to these injuries. And it's got people talking. No one's going to be able to make sense of what happened. Nobody's going to be able to make sense of how a 16-year-old with a bright future, beloved by his friends and family, has his life snuffed out. Mm-hmm. Not to mention uh, the young people whose lives will be forever changed. You might argue forever ruined uh, by for, participating in yeah. this. And how about the witnesses? Mm-hmm. How about the students that were there, the parents that were there, the administrators, the teachers, the staff at this school? Uh, but over the course of the uh, the Easter weekend, uh, Ramadan, Passover, people celebrating uh, different religious traditions, et cetera, mm-hmm. talking about family, talking about, how, you know, you know, cherishing those close to you, trying to wrap their minds around this. 
people are wondering, how does this happen in front of a high school? How does this happen to an innocent 16-year-old kid? It's something that I, I, I just felt like we've been carrying this weekend. Yeah. I wanted to address it. I don't know what I have to offer to the conversation. Well, as a father, I mean, it must make you feel a certain way. Well, you, you, you think about just, I, I can't imagine what his family is yeah. feeling right now. And uh, just to say it, it feels tacky to say it, but but the the way that he died as well, the 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 abuse that he suffered, the pain he would have been in, I mm-hmm. just you know, and and clinging to life in hospital. You think of his friends, yeah. You think of his family, and uh, it's one of those things. I, I don't know if this would have. I mean, it's it's not. You know, I feel bad. You don't want to sit here and sort of armchair you know, quarterback this thing. People have been talking, and I've noticed online a lot of the conversation around the school resource officers and having police officers in schools. Did you have one when you were in high school? Was there one in your school? I was just going to say that we had sort of a security guard that would walk around. And that was, I I don't want to date myself, but that was like 20 years ago. So I'm just wondering, you know, did this school have it? Uh, It should be in place, I think, at every school. I know it's a cost, and it will cost, uh, you know, the school something. But, yeah, there should be someone. I know there's, you know, teachers walking around, uh, you know, kind of doing the best they can. But there should be a dedicated professional, Well, and if after this. I mean, this was, uh, you know, I mean, all reports, you know, seem to indicate. And police have been really... Uh, the the the, um, the releases like the public statements that Edmonton police have made that investigators have made, which is oftentimes the case mm. when when there are arrests outstanding, yeah, um, you know, pre-trial type thing. Police have have been sort of sparing in the details that they've provided, but it is clear that there were weapons present in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fair to suggest that it's unfair to put teachers in a situation where they're trying to manage a scenario where there's weapons. Yeah, I totally didn't mean right? that. No, I know you're you not. I'm, I'm just saying. And also, I mean, had there been a school resource officer present, you know, would that officer have been able to get there in time? Would they have been able to, you know, would it have yeah. acted as, as a deterrent? You know, if, if, if students from other schools... I is one officer enough, right? Is that enough? Yeah. And then if so, then then what is enough and how does it work? And, and you know, how do we define community policing and all of these types of things? Um, one of our audience members, Plain Power, right now says the friends will retaliate. You know, violence begats violence. You hope that's not the case. That's one of the things police have addressed here uh, in, in their communications, their public communications, talking about it. Um, Jillian makes a fair point, too, says, you know, certain white people are quick to think the solution is always more police. Uh, when you need police intervention, you've acted too late. Uh, stop cutting all other school supports. And we know Jillian, a regular commenter in our audience, is a teacher. So this is a that, that's a, an astute comment on her part. And and I don't mean to suggest that the answer is always more police. I don't know that a school resource officer, uh, which is typically a police officer, the you know a badged you know sort of gun carrying police officer mm-hmm. that's stationed in a school. We had one in ours. We had a big high school. We had one in ours. I know that's not the case in every high school. We still had fights. There was still violence at our school. It didn't always act as the deterrent. Isabel here says, my son was attacked and repeatedly threatened with knives while attending Archbishop O'Leary, another high school in Edmonton. Says the school did nothing, nor did the police. We had to move them to another school. That from Isabel. You can let us know your thoughts on this. It's it's, it's just obviously just an absolutely gut-wrenching, horrific tragedy. And it's one where we say, and we want to make sure that we simply communicate. Sometimes people sort of scoff at the idea of thoughts and prayers, but we do want his family to know that our family, uh, our company here, and then of course our families individually as well are thinking of you. We did want to mention that there is a GoFundMe set up. Uh, You can simply Google GoFundMe 
please help Karen Veer's family. And as you can see, the organizers there have, have set that up and they've uh, so far reached $176,000, which is really remarkable, of a goal of a quarter million. They say that, uh, you know, his family, obviously, his father on long-term disability, his family's going to struggle. Uh, I mean, for the rest of their lives with this but his mother obviously overcome by grief who wouldn't be and they've got a 13 year old daughter to support as well his younger sister and so you can check out gofundme please help karen veer's family if you'd like to help them out in just a second megan wright uh a now former leduc firefighter will join us Uh, she's a paramedic she's been working in first response for for more than a decade 13 years now she's going to tell us why she decided to resign from her dream job that coming up in just a second i mentioned the team at park power how they power our hashtag every day every single show they're there powering the real talk rj hashtag well we want to remind you that park power right now with a great offer for real talkers if you bring your business over there internet electricity natural gas at parkpower.ca using the promo code 2022-realtalk is going to knock $70 off your first power bill. 70 bucks knocked right off with the promo code 2022-realtalk. You can check out their fixed rate option. They've got the regulated rate option, right? People say that maybe that's not the one you want to be on right now. It's, it's variable rate. The fixed rates give you a little more stability with your utilities. You can check that out. And I love this, this email I mentioned from Michelle. She was in touch. She knows our Real Talk Golf Classics coming up June 23rd. We're opening up registration in the next few days. Yeah. And so she sent us an email to golf at ryanjesperson.com. She, she wants to volunteer. So we're going to be emailing Michelle back. We're excited about that. She says, oh yeah, P.S., The team at Park Power were amazing. I just switched over two weeks ago. Service couldn't be better, and I love keeping it local. That from Michelle. So don't take it from me. Take it from Michelle. (laughs) I love that. Hey, Northwest Fest is coming up. We're excited to be partnering with Northwest Fest this year, May 2022. It is back, and Real Talk proud to be the opening night presenting sponsor the opening night film this year who you gonna call it's the story of the legendary (laughs) artist who brought the ghostbusters song to the world but the massive success of the song overshadowed ray parker jr's career you will not want to miss opening night who you gonna call you can check out all the details at northwestfest.ca running from may 5th to 15th all in-person screenings at Metro Cinema. Again, northwestfest.ca. Well, our first guest this morning uh, started her career in EMS back in 2007. Coming up on 15 years ago, fire training was back in 2011. She's been at it for more than a decade as a full-time paramedic in our home city of Edmonton. And about seven years ago, she started as well with Leduc Fire Services. Everybody learned Megan Wright's name when she spoke passionately in front of Leduc City Council just a short time ago, the beginning of April. She ended the seven-year career she'd grown up dreaming of as she stood up and offered her resignation over harassment allegations that she and at least two other female firefighters have publicly made. Megan Wright joining us live this morning on Real Talk. Thank you for making time for us. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate you allowing me this opportunity to sit down and just real talk about this. Yeah, you and I had a chance to connect over the phone yesterday. And and uh, one of the things I appreciated, you were telling me how difficult it is to try to get a story out when you're talking to reporters and they've got to file stories that are 90 seconds on the six o'clock news and the stories are over right as soon as they begin. 
And you're sitting there going, there's so many elements to this. There's such a significant, irrelevant background here. You want to make sure people totally understand the depth of your experience and the experience of other first responders you've worked with. You wanted mm-hmm. to be a firefighter since you were a little girl. Yeah, um, I actually, my first memory, um, I was really small and uh, my grandma, she worked at a health food store. <laughs> and while I was there sometimes with her and I was like only five or six, um, they had some toys for like the grandkids that would come to work and there was a stethoscope in it and I was obsessed with it. And from there, it just like grew and grew and grew and grew. Um, started out as like just a helper and then it just it, it just got bigger. <laughs> and, you know, as I got older and realizing, you know, you know who comes with the ambulance all the time? Firefighters. And <laughs> then I got obsessed with that too. And it's literally been like my life's work to do this. So Megan, there was obviously a lot that went into you publicly offering your resignation earlier this month in front of Leduc City Council. And uh, I don't want to speak certainly on your behalf, but there have been uh, there has been legal action naming two other female fighters, not yourself, as a matter of fact, uh, in this initial action, but citing uh, systemic uh, harassment, uh, bullying, uh, allegations of discrimination. When did you first know uh, at what point in your career that this was going to be part of it, that the, that the well was poisoned to a certain degree? Do you remember? Um, the very first time I ever stepped on a firehouse floor, hmm. and that would have been in 2007. And how did it present itself initially? Like, did, 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 you, did you see it coming in a way? Did, 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 had you heard about a certain <laughs> I- culture? Um, you know what? I didn't actually see it coming because I had thought, you know, in this day and age that that sort of thing just didn't happen. And when I did my EMT in 2007, um, <clears throat> I was like obsessed. Like I, I was, you know, I was finally doing what I wanted to do. Um, I was going to do my EMT. And then directly after that, I was going to do my fire training and, I did really well in school. Like I was actually the top of my class and all my instructors were like, I have no concerns about you. You're going to do amazing in this career. And then I was blown away when I stepped onto the floor and it was just like all this negative energy being thrown at me and just automatically um, the message was, you're not enough. Like the minute you stepped on the floor, it didn't matter who I was, um, it didn't matter how much I loved the profession or how hard I had worked to get where I was. I just was immediately labeled not enough. And something I find really frustrating that I learned very quickly is women in the firehouse is actually, a lot of people consider it an equality hire. Like we're not good enough. And the only reason that we are given a position is because equality, equality hires. Like, and I've heard this multiple times throughout my career. Um, A prime example of that is Spruce Grove Fire Department. When they did kind of their initiative and they hired just females, that was 
disastrous. Mm. <laughs> um, and I don't think it had the intent. Like they didn't get what they wanted out of that. And then all that the public and other firefighters saw was that they were just given this opportunity and they must not be good enough. That's why they couldn't go through the regular process. And then there was all these like rumors that concessions had been made for them. And like, I can't really speak to that, but as soon as I seen that on the news and seen it being talked about in within the first responder world, I was like, again, just apparently women aren't enough and we have to be equality hires. And that's really frustrating to someone in this profession who has devoted their entire life's work to that. Megan, how did, how did you manage that like early in your career into the years where you would become the, the more veteran firefighter or the, or the more veteran firefighter paramedic, you know, obviously people will say, well, we understand. I know, you know, a lot of people might say on the fire department or anywhere else, wow, first year, kind of the rookies, the rookies do the dishes, the rookies do the cleaning. This is a rookie mm -hmm, thing. Totally. What a culture thing, an initiation thing. But as you became more of a veteran, did it ease up or was this something you were constantly managing? It, constant management. Um, for me, later on in my career, um, it, not as bad. And I think a lot of that just has to do with like how I carry myself, my bearing. Um, I'm so, and so, so sad that I have to say this, but I kind of had to reject being a woman in order to gain their approval. And anything seen as like soft and feminine was just unacceptable. And so I'd like to say that, you know, it got better, but I don't think it actually got better. It's just, I had to change who I was when I was at work in order to be respected. And now that I think back on it and reflect on it, I'm like, that's not how it, how it should be. You shouldn't have to change yourself to be accepted into an environment. When you talk about the, uh, you know, the allegations of, of harassment, um, of sexual misconduct, and, and I should note, as any interviewer should, that none of these allegations have been proven in court. But when you did uh, bring these up with your superiors, I'm assuming that you did, what sort of a response did you get? How many times would you say that you ran this up the chain, so to speak? A couple times. Um, not as much as I would like, because at some point, you just get frustrated <laughs> like you start to feel like it's you and not them especially when that's the constant message that you're receiving and it's just frustrating <laughs> so deciding to step in front of a city council i mean to attend a city council meeting and ultimately to offer your resignation is is a big step and it immediately put you on the radar of, of news media, which, of course, then had hundreds of thousands of people, uh, uh, you know, taking a look at your story and, and trying to understand the nuance of it or, or filling in the blanks in their own minds of what the experience must have been like for you to get it to the point where you would say, though I've dreamed of this job since I was a young girl, I'm deciding to walk away from it. At what point did you cross that bridge? At what point did you say, I got to just walk away? <laughs> um first I'm gonna preface this with kind of a background of myself because I think it's important 
um, in kind of like what I refer to as another life, um, I was abused physically, emotionally, and mentally by a man that I was in a relationship with. And I don't want to get into all the, all the ins and outs of that, um, but it was terrible. And a week before I resigned, um, so I resigned in front of council on April 4th, but March 28th was actually the first time I went to a council meeting. And our intent was just to just go and to let council know that, hey, like, not only are we employees, but we're also residents and citizens of the city of Leduc. And you have a major responsibility in that arena. And your only employee is the city manager. And if he's not doing his job, then you guys need to do something about it. So I had sent um, a counselor an email just to ask her, I didn't wanna get into like the splashy details. I just said, have you seen the reports? And if you haven't, I need you to get them and I need you to read them. Um, and I don't need it. I, I told her right in the email, I don't need to air all of this out with you right now, because if you just get the reports, it's all in there. And so she had said, no, we actually, we don't have the reports. We don't have access to them and we're trying. That really upset me. <laughs> and that was my first motivator to go to council on March 28th to just show them like, hey, this isn't going away. Um, like, look at me right in my eyes and just know that this isn't a serious issue. So we had plans, it was myself and uh, the two other female firefighters that were in the original statement of claim. And we went just by ourselves and we had masks on that said silent no longer. And our plan was to say nothing. And as we walked in and we sat down, uh, we were immediately approached by the protective service services manager, Daryl Melby. And he made a beeline towards us and felt it was very important to remind us that this is a public forum. Interesting. That <laughs> yeah, that really upset me because he didn't just say it once and it wasn't just like a gentle reminder. To me, it felt like intimidation. It felt like I'm walking in there to send a message that I will be silent no longer and I'm giving you an opportunity to do something. And instead of using that opportunity to do something, he felt the need to come and approach us and remind us several times, this is a public forum. I need to remind you, this is a public forum. I don't know if I've ever been so mad in my entire life. And something snapped in me that day hmm. because it just reminded me of my previous experience that I had had and how difficult it was um, that, that previous abuse, it followed a very similar pattern. And when I told people that should do something about it, they didn't. And when I tried to come forward on it multiple times, it was like, I was gaslighted. Oh, it's not that bad. And when I was sitting there 
in council with these two other women trying to support them the best that I could. And that happened. I snapped. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to take this silent, no longer thing to the next level. I'm just not sure how, I'm not sure when, I'm not sure how, like what I'm going to do about it. I just knew that I left that meeting and I had to do something about it. And that week was quite possibly one of the hardest weeks I've ever had in my life. Sure. Because I had to come to terms not only with all of the trauma that had happened at the fire hall, not only in the Duke, but at other departments in fire school, like, and this crosses like countries. Like I went to fire school in a different country Mm. and just realizing like, oh my goodness, like we cannot let this happen anymore because now it wasn't just directed at me. I realized it was directed at all women and I just couldn't, deal with it anymore and I knew I had to do something I had to step up and I had to say something yeah does that answer your question (laughs) I mean I just I so appreciate your candor Megan um I I, it must be difficult to talk about this but but I also just appreciate you shining some light for us uh, on what the experience was like for you did did you receive any support from fellow firefighters I know that that obviously you, you sort of, it's one of those jobs where it's, it's, it's like a calling, right? It's, it's more than a job. It's a career for sure. And they talk about family and the so-called brotherhood, right? Um, and also too, like we refer to, you know, we prefer to talk about the fire hall as the firehouse mm. because we're a family. But if you notice, if you, I'm sure you listen to my resignation speech, um, I never called it the firehouse. Because to me, it's not the firehouse anymore. And, oh, I'm getting a little emotional. (laughs) Uh, Like, for example, on all of our apparatus, it says, our family protecting yours. And I always thought that that meant that we were just, like, we were in this calling together when I was a part of something so big and so important. And to realize that, like, oh my goodness, like the thing that I've devoted my entire life to isn't what I thought it was. And that was really hard to come to. And first, I'm going to take this in a couple of different directions. Um, First, it's not all the men. Um, Because I think that's really important to say. It's not every single guy at Liduke Fire. There are multiple multiples that I would that are that are, that work there that I would consider like my brothers, and they are part of my family. And ooh, you had to throw that picture up, hey? <laughs> what are we seeing here, Megan? Um, so this is actually during my fire recruit class, and this is for I'm sure everybody's heard of the fire campout. I know we haven't done one in a couple of years because of COVID. That's the muscular dystrophy one, right? Yeah, or is it, yeah. it's like the huge, um, it's, it's, it's huge. And there's so many components to this because yes, that cause is super important to us, but it's also as well where we all get together as a family and we raise money. 
for muscular dystrophy. And we do it in a super cool way. And the gentleman that I'm standing with in that photo, those are my brothers. Like they were in my recruit class. And, you know, as the recruit class, it was kind of our job to, you know, stand on the road and get donations with the boot. Um, so that's kind of why when you when that picture popped up, I got a little bit emotional because, you know, there are guys there that are my brothers and they would never do something like this. But it's a big issue because they it's like they feel that they can't support us. And that upsets me so much because they consider us to be family and they're afraid to support us. And that just hurts me so much. Megan, um, we, oh, sorry, go ahead. I lost my train of thought. You, oh, <laughs> I I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No I just, I wanted nope. to make the point to you that when we chatted It'll yesterday, I, to, I told you that this was going to happen. I told you that time was going to fly when we're talking and we've been talking now for, for more than 20 minutes and, I, and I've still not Seriously. even, we've not even got to the point, uh, the important one I know that you wanted to make as well, which is that, and, and I appreciate you being willing to talk about it because it is so important and that is the, the mental health and the potential trauma implications of first response and and of that career calling and i'd be curious to know how much of a factor um, your own experience your own mental health was in ultimately getting you to the point of doing interviews like this of, of becoming almost i know you may not like it put this way but kind of the face of an issue that probably many people experience in their line of work totally and i definitely feel the responsibility and the weight of that because when I resigned in front of council, like originally that was for me, <laughs> that was just like, I'm so done with all of this. I'm so done with all of the abuse. And I'm finally going to step forward and say, this is enough. And where did I get the strength and force you to do that? Um, <clears throat> one, my own personal experience, like I've experienced this type of stuff before and I know that I have that internal strength to draw from that I can stand up and say, no, this is enough. I'm not dealing with this. So the original intent was to, for me, like for my own mental health, because I'm just like, I'm done with this. I cannot deal with this and they need to know. And everybody needs to know that this is unacceptable. And then it just kind of went in this completely different direction. Hmm. And that, makes me kind of like want to talk about like the mental health aspect of it. Um, as a first responder, mental health is a big issue. And I know this is talked about a lot, but I think like the big point that I would like to get across is being a first responder is hard already. <laughs> the trauma that you say day in and day out, it's enough to break the average person. To be a first responder, you have to be very, a very special kind of person. And unfortunately, even if you have everything that you need, sometimes this job just gets gets to you because hmm. we do some, we see some terrible, terrible things. Yeah. But on top of that, so when you're dealing with all of this and then you add that like discrimination, intimidation, bullying, it's just like this whole nother layer and you just feel suffocated. And I know for myself, 
I got to a point where I didn't want to live anymore and not just like, not even, I want to kill myself. Like I didn't even, it wasn't even that. It's so hard to explain. It was just like, this is so much. It's so overwhelming. I can't deal with this anymore. I just want to die. And not because I wanted to actually end my life or kill myself. I just wanted all of this to end. So thankfully, about two and a half years ago, I had the strength and wherewithal to stand back and go, oh my goodness, Megan, if this is your thought every single day, we have a problem. You also think that you're not enough, that you're not good enough. Why? Where does this come from? And thankfully, I got help. (laughs) Extensive therapy. And it made me be able to take a step back reflect on what's happening and just be like no this is wrong so wrong Megan and for you to step into the light and out of the fear and just say this is wrong for me that's what set me free like knowing that I don't care what happens after this I just need to stand up and say nope not acceptable not cool I'm not okay with it And then after that, after I stood up in front of council and said that, oh my goodness, it felt so good. And like this weight has been lifted off of me that I've been carrying around since 2007. (laughs) Megan, I'm uh, grateful. I know that the story doesn't end here, obviously. And and, uh, I know that, you know, the city of Leduc has, in response to these allegations, taken several steps, um, you know, disciplinary action that that the city says balances an appropriate penalty against the level of misconduct that's taken place. Um, they've launched a national search to find a new fire chief. There's just resigned um, an external firm secured to conduct a culture review of the organization to create action plans that they say will ensure holistic culture changes. Um, dedicated healthcare professionals made available to provide counseling and mental health support specifically for the fire department and a stronger commitment to increased communication from administration. I guess ultimately the question is in closing, and I'll ask you this, we respect your time and your availability here. I mean, how do you make systemic change in an industry like this? Like you said, the story goes beyond Leduc. It doesn't mean that Leduc doesn't have to look at its own backyard. It doesn't mean that other fire departments or other workplaces for that matter have to examine their own space. But when it comes mm-hmm. to systemic change, do those sound like steps in the right direction? Do you expect those steps? well again i'll be real with you ryan how many times have i heard that in my career over and over and over again since 2007 a lot and it's a lot of lip service in my opinion um for example if you were to pull up leduc fire services website like their facebook page you would see if you scroll down, you would actually probably find pictures of me in there. Um, and it's like, hashtag International Women's Day. Um, we're so proud. Da, 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 da. But how I feel about that is you don't actually feel pride in us because if you did actually feel pride in us, this stuff would never happen in the fire department. And if we step forward and said, oh my goodness, this is happening. I don't know what to do. The people that are, their whole job is to take care of us and keep us safe, they would have actually done something. So every time I see one of those photos, I get so 
frustrated and I actually spoke out about it and said, you know, if you guys are going to post these photos, like well and good, like I appreciate what you're doing because it is a good message for young women and, and everyone. But at the same time, if it's all lip service and you don't actually believe it and like, we're more just like, you know, you prayed us out so you can be like, oh, look at how inclusive I am. Look at how many women I let work here. That's how it feels to me. And I have actually even refused to be a part of photos. And then they ended up just taking them anyways. Because, and then I sat down and like had conversations with officers trying to explain to them, it's not that we don't wanna take the photos and we don't wanna be a part of it and we don't wanna have that good message. But when it's your narrative and not ours, it's frustrating. Megan Wright has worked in first response as a paramedic and a firefighter since 2007. Uh, she's not named in legal action against the city of Leduc, at least not for now, uh, but certainly is one of those that has spoken publicly, including a resignation in front of Leduc City Council earlier this month. We've talked for half an hour, and I know we could keep going, Megan. Uh, I know that people are going to be certainly grateful for you sharing your perspective here, and we appreciate it. Thanks for the real talk. Thanks so much, Ryan. Like, honestly, I just appreciate this so much. And I know we didn't get through everything because it's a lot. <laughs> so if you ever want me back, you just let me know. Cause there's, you, as you know, there's pages, there's stuff that we can talk about. Um, even if you want to get into like the actual specifics about me, we can do that. Um, but I just think the first most important message here was just some bad stuff's going on and it has greater implications for not just women, not just the fire hall, but like society, the world. And I think it's really important that we start talking about it. And I'm tired of hearing this conversation is difficult to have. We know it's okay. difficult. <laughs> I know it's difficult. It's difficult for you. It's difficult for me. But you showed up for it. And I appreciate that. Thank you, Megan. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. You got it. That's Megan Wright. You can let us know your thoughts. I'm sure that some of you, this experience will resonate. Um, I'm sure that we're going to hear from firefighters that would like to share their thoughts. And of course, this is an issue that extends across industries, across professions. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can be in touch. You can send us an email anytime. Uh, coming up in just a moment, the leading edge and then National Geographic photographer David Litchfogger, this incredible new book, Octopus, Seahorse, Jellyfish. Can't wait to see it. First, this is a message for all of those families that have a family member, a beloved family member that wants to maintain their independence. They want to age in place. They want to be able to stay home. They don't want you to put them into a center. But at the same time, you've got concerns. You want to make sure they're getting their medicine. You want to make sure that they're eating properly, that they're socializing with other people, maybe a caregiver that's been chosen specifically through a personality matching process. This is exactly what Infinity Healthcare does. I want you to check them out today. If this is something that is right up your alley, if this is maybe a decision that your family's looking to make over the next number of weeks or months, we recommend Infinity Healthcare at infinity-8.ca. They're always hiring, by the way. If you're in the caregiving profession, swing on by their website. Also, I mentioned this morning that Canada's online university, Athabasca University, sees big interest in enrollment in the spring. I'm wondering if it's that kind of psychological impact that spring has on most of us, if not all of us, the fresh start, the new beginning 
right? As the snow melts, the flowers start to come up. Why not let the same thing happen in your own world? Maybe your new career pursuit. Athabasca U has world-class accredited online programs and courses that offer you flexibility. That's one of the biggest factors why so many people choose Athabasca University. It's also one of Canada's most renowned research universities. You can learn more about what they're doing today at AthabascaU.ca. And our friends at Local Environmental want to remind you that they are in the business not just of waste and recycling management, but also water hauling, portable fences, portable toilets, landfill services, vacuum trucks, and they're constantly expanding their footprint. I saw them tweeting out to the good folks of White Court just the other day. They're doing big things in Sturgeon County as well and elsewhere across Alberta and Saskatchewan. You can learn more at localenvironmental.ca. And of course, don't forget Trash Talk. Every Friday's here on the show. Get a rant off your chest by emailing us. It's presented proudly by Local Environmental. David Litschwager, in just a moment... Every Tuesday, our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy give us a chance to shine the spotlight on a person, a group, or even a thing that's changing people's lives, that's making a huge impact. We call it the Leading Edge. In the spotlight today is the amazing team. It's Leading Edge's Charity of the Month for April. It's Food for Thought. This is the story of a family that saw a need and then went above and beyond to create an incredible entity that feeds hungry students, hundreds of them, every single week. They're celebrating their 20th year of operation this year, a nonprofit providing food for hungry school children. It started back in 2002 when Carol and Bernie Kowalczyk read an article about government funded school lunch programs cut. Well, they partnered with a local grocer and they arranged to have hot lunches delivered to Sifton Elementary School. Well, over the past 20 years, of course, many schools have signed on. They've served more than a million meals to students in the Edmonton area. It's now a second generation family operation with their daughters, Christine and Kelly, creating a small volunteer board. They still hold their meetings around Carol, their mom's kitchen table. They've expanded to 20 schools now. They have no overhead or operating costs and 100% of donations are used to purchase and deliver food. That's why they're on the leading edge. Leading Edge Physiotherapy is proud to support Food for Thought and thrilled to announce they're sponsoring an entire new school. For the next school year, that means breakfasts and lunches for children who would not otherwise have these meals provided. You can learn more at foodforthoughtedmonton.com and support that program if you feel led. The Leading Edge is presented by Leading Edge Physiotherapy. Life shouldn't hurt. Well, our next guest is a world-renowned photographer, let me just grab the hard copy of this book. This is absolutely stunning. Published by National Geographic. It's David Litchfogger's new work, Octopus Seahorse Jellyfish, an introduction to an exploration of some of the world's most elusive and mysterious sea creatures. David, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us this morning. Congratulations on this amazing new book. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Am I pronouncing your last name Okay. Yes, absolutely. Fine. Wonderful. David, you've, uh, of course, I mean, um, you know, I, the covers that you've shot for National Geographic have, 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 have just caused people to, to stop in their tracks and stare. Uh, you're a master of storytelling through the photographic arts. What was it about these three sea creatures in particular that prompted this 
incredible adventure? Um, well, they're cool. <laughs> and, you know, people love octopus, uh, octopuses. Um, seahorses are like, you know, the, the, uh, a thing of sort of legend and, and myth. Um, and jellyfish, you know, some people get the total creeps from them and some people really love them. So I think each one of them has their own little appeal. So, um, you know, it was a nice thing to be able to, to go back and look at uh, projects that were specifically about each one of those that were magazine articles and then draw from other articles, you know, that, that also included some of those creatures as well and bring it all together. We've uh, let our podcast audience know ahead of time that they're probably going to want to make the flip over to YouTube so they can check out some of these photos. Producer John Hicks. Or they're going to miss out. They're going to miss out. I mean, you, you got to see these images that David captured. David, how on earth do you get photos like this? Can you explain this to us? This looks like a, this looks like you got a seahorse into studio shooting in front of a white wall. How, how do you capture something like this? Well, I went to a place called Seahorse World for this one, and it's, it's kind of like... Uh, it's a seahorse farm, basically. They're, they raise them, um, and then they can share them with uh, public aquariums and, and other places for educational purposes. Um, and so they have a lot of seahorses. Um, and that, that was a male seahorse that had just given birth to all of those uh, little small seahorses. And it's in a little... Uh, it's a tank called a Chrysal tank. It has a, a, a circular flow. Um, and it's, the seahorses like to find a place in that circular flow where they can just kind of hang out. Um, and so by manipulating that, you can, you can uh, get everything to be just right. And it is like a little miniature studio. What is it about, I, I, I mean, obviously one of the things that jumped out at you, you say that's a male seahorse who had just given birth and people go, wait a second, what? Uh, even those of us with high, <laughs> we're very proud of our high school diplomas. I barely got through high school biology, pretty proud of that. And I went, right, I knew. Uh, what else was it about the seahorse that so fascinated you? Well, you know, they're fish and they, they're, they don't actually swim very well. <clears throat> so, but they have the little prehensile tail to hang on to things. So it's... Um, and you know the 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 female passes her eggs off to the male, and the male has the the, the pregnancy part of it to carry those young. <clears throat> and they have they're highly visual. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have independent eyes, so they can uh, you know they can look behind them and in front of them at the same time. Um, they you know they can't really open their mouth. Their jaws kind of fused, so they they they, um, they eat plankton. <clears throat> they don't have a stomach, so they have a they have to eat constantly. Um, they don't have any sort of internal food storage, um, so there's just all these. But they also live all around the world in uh, temperate and tropical water, so they're highly successful. But there's only about less than fifty species but they're spread out all over the place. So they're, I mean, it's fascinating. Hmm. 
we we were uh, raving about. Well, I think everybody was raving about the uh, the documentary out uh, a couple years ago. My octopus teacher that that took a whole bunch of hardware, including some of the most prestigious prizes awarded to film, of course. And uh, I watched it. I was telling the story of, of, of watching it. It was about one o'clock in the morning when I started. I was just scrolling through Netflix, I think. And, and I thought, oh, I'll check this out and watch it for 10 minutes and see if it's something I want to watch later on. You know, because obviously I should go to bed because obviously I have work in the morning. And then the next thing you know, it's 90 minutes later and I'm sitting there like with tears in my eyes, tears rolling down my face going, number one, I will never eat octopus again. Number one. Uh, but number two, of course, uh, had, had a huge uh, impact. Uh, even on this show, uh, subsequent interviews, we spoke with experts uh, on that particular creature, endeavoring to learn more about them. What a fascinating animal the octopus is. Did you always have a fascination with the octopus or, or was this in, through the process of, of putting this book together? Did, did you become more and more intrigued with every passing image? Well, the first my first encounter with an octopus was in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Um, and uh, that was, I mean, I guess it was formative in a certain sense, but it was also 20 years ago. Um, and it ended up on the cover of uh, a book called Archipelago. Um, and Ever since then, um, I would, you know, I did a story about tide pools and I had photographed one octopus and then I did another story about uh, marine microfauna and there was a little, uh, uh, you know, just post-larval octopus in that one. So they kept, they, that creature kept showing up uh, in all of these different projects. So then I decided to do a bigger piece just about octopus. Um, but then in the book, I was able to draw all that stuff together. So, um, yeah, I have a long-term fascination with octopus. That's for sure. I, 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 there's nothing quite like the realization that you have grossly underestimated the impressive nature of, of another living being. And that was me with the octopus. And, and I feel like they vaulted almost right to the top of my list. Uh, with regards to, to, to the most impressive animals around your photographs. I mean, I know, again, apologies to the podcast listeners, but y you have to check these out. We're talking to David Lichvager, um, National Geographic photographer, acclaimed photographer. Is it one of your favorite animals to photograph with regards to the colors and the shape and the almost it's shape shifting? I mean, the, the, it, it's, it's, it's quite alien like, right? It, it's, it's unlike almost anything else on the planet. Well, I mean, they're, they're mollusks. So they, you know, I guess that, you know, their cousins are the snails um, and slugs. Um, but they're, you know, they have eyes that are actually, you know, from a design and uh, execution point of view. I mean, their eyes are better built than ours. Um, and they, but they don't have much of a brain, but they have this very well executed neural network. Um, they can, you know, when they touch something, they know what, they kind of know what color it is and they know what it tastes like just by touching it. Um, and the, when you said shape-shifting, yes, they can, they can change the texture of their skin. They can change the color of their skin. They can 
you know, they, they don't have the, the hardest thing that they have is their beak and it's pretty small. They have a, other, two other pieces of tissue that are a little bit stiff, but other than that, they can, they can squeeze through a hole that you, that, you, that when you look at the octopus and you look at this hole, you could, you'd say no way. But then if you let, you know, if you let them be the fantastic escape artists that they are, um, the, you know, they'll be gone. Yeah, I, I saw an Instagram video a while ago of, of that exact scenario, an octopus making a break for freedom on a fishing boat. John, you saw this one? <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. Everybody's- like it's, he shoved through like, I don't know, it's like the top of a pop can. Yeah. And the, the octopus went directly through Amazing. it. I, and David, you're kind of like... I, the fishermen must have been cheering for the octopus because somebody had to be filming it. Uh, somebody had to be okay with the octopus getting off the boat. But I'm the same sort of a thing. I'm going, there's no way he's going to fit through it, and he did. And then there's the third subject of your book, which most people might think is one of the worst entities in the entire ocean. If you've ever brushed up against one when you're surfing or snorkeling, you know that not everybody loves the jellyfish. Did your mind change about the jellyfish or did you know better heading into the project than the rest of us? Well, I think, you know, there's thousands of species of jellyfish and, you know, maybe there's a half a dozen that people have negative uh, interchanges with. Um, I, I, you know, I do remember, you know, getting uh, a Portuguese man of war sting, you know, across the face that is, you know, a stunning experience to say the least. Um, and, you know, absolutely unforgettable. And I'm not going to volunteer for that one ever again. Right. But, um, <clears throat> you know, there's so many lovely jellyfish that will never sting a person um, that, um, you know, being stung by one is the least of it in a certain sense. I think there's. <clears throat> The, you know, the, there's the cannonball jellyfish whose principal predator are, you know, endangered sea turtles. Um, they're, they're incredibly significant uh, portions of the, the ocean's ecology. David, when you participate in, in a project like this, and when you undertake this, and, and obviously so much goes into you know, photographing more than 500 specimens, and then you got to pick your favorite images. And, and of course, you put this thing together, and, and I would imagine a box probably arrived at your front door, and you got to tear into it and see your hardcover book for the very first time. How does a project like this influence your perspective with, with regards to maybe even your emotional investment in the long-term survival of species like this? Does it have an impact on a guy like you? <clears throat> Well, I mean, I mean, I have the great privilege to be able to make a living um, going out in the world to try to to see how uh, complicated, interesting. interconnected um but then it all comes in in the end what i'm trying to do is just show how beautiful it is 
and kind of a, uh, a and I and I develop you know a great deal of affection, um, and so I think that <clears throat> and that changes me. Um, so so I think that that sort of wanting to share, wanting to communicate the fact that that having affection for, for <clears throat> the world, life, um, <clears throat> improves my life. So in, if, any, if I can in any way um, share that, um, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, mission accomplished. Uh, it, it's an absolutely stunning work. Uh, again, here it is. I'll hold it in front of the camera. This is Octopus Seahorse Jellyfish, uh, just released, uh, just published by National Geographic. Our guest, uh, world-renowned photographer, David Lichfager, uh, a nature photographer, and in this case, uh, showing off some of uh, planet Earth's most remarkable sea creatures. The underestimated ones in included, thanks to Neanderthals like me, underestimating jellyfish, octopus, and the rest of them. David, thanks for doing this, and congratulations. Thank you very much. You got it. I love how he put that. Uh, this is Earth Week. I mean, not just because it's Earth Week. I was about to say who cares. Earth Day coming up, right? Earth Day week? coming yeah. up on Thursday. We're going to have a great conversation on Thursday. But talking about his affection for the planet, making his life better. I mean, how could you not? Looking at those pictures, yeah. being that close, learning about those incredible creatures, how could you not develop a, you know, Shame on me for my closed-mindedness around the value that the jellyfish... I always knew that the jellyfish was an important food source for a lot of animals. I like how you brought that up, though. Like, a lot of people, they think of a jellyfish. Yeah. First thing they think of is a sting, right? So. Yeah. When we got married, we got married down in Costa Rica, and we, we decided mm. to treat everybody to, like, a, a day's excursion where you got to ride. Have you ever been on a banana boat? They pull this... I have, yeah. It's like a massive, inflatable banana, yeah. uh, sort of. And uh, sort of like the shape of like a big canoe and it's pulled behind a ski boat, typically a, a power boat. And they pulled us to this island. And uh, when we were arriving at the island, everybody's enthusiastic and excited. And they, and they do a, a blow by the island. and Everybody's jumping off the, the uh, banana. And you know where this is going. I do. <laughs> <laughs> the first few people that were in the water were all of a sudden like, get out, get out, get out. I mean, my buddy's looking at me. He's like, jellyfish, there's jellyfish everywhere. And everyone's like, swim through them. He's like, I can't, I'm getting stuck. And it was... Uh, Oh. Not the most ideal circumstance. So we, we started calling it Jellyfish Cove. And thankfully, the discomfort has subsided while the humor has remained in place now uh, for, for several years, for more yeah. than 10 years. So that, <laughs> that's good stuff. Uh, there's another animal story that I wanted to talk to you about, John. That's coming up in just a bit. But oh, first, no. I want to remind our friends, you know, do you know, I don't know if you know, I asked you to pull a photo of a Canada goose. I think so now, I know the one you're talking now about. Now you're starting to put two yeah. and two together. I want to talk about, they're not, I don't think they're technically Canada's national bird. But they should be. They probably should be. Yeah. First, speaking of birds, dare I, if you're looking for real Alberta poultry, Chicken, turkey, I know. I can't, I can't, sometimes, I mean, if you're looking for the best fresh Alberta chicken and turkey in the province, you're going to want to check out Friesen Brothers. 16 locations across the province. This business still family owned and operated 65 years plus. Alberta grown, Alberta owned. Also, of course, Alberta beef, real Alberta beef, proudly presented by their team of real butchers and 
a phenomenal selection of vegetarian and vegan products as well. Friesen Brothers knows that good food matters. Really good food matters. And that's why they make it job number one. Don't forget the first of the month. It's 15% off your whole bill. As long as you spend a minimum $75, you can learn more at Friesen.com. Our friends at Eden Landscaping getting set for a busy spring. Now is a perfect time to get in touch with them if you want to learn more about what they can offer in bringing your outdoor space to life. If you go to landscapeedmonton.ca and click on services, you can see that whatever your vision, they'll execute it with precise attention to detail. That might be veggie planter boxes, edible garden boxes, excavation. Maybe you're running a gas line to put a propane natural gas heater into your garage. Why wait till the fall to try to make that happen? Check out landscapeedmonton.ca today. That's Eden Landscaping. Our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge want to remind you that, yeah, they've got a great selection of new vehicles. They can share inventory between their two dealerships in Sherwood Park and St. Albert. But, of course, their pre-owned selection as well. Strong options for folks that aren't looking to break the bank, but they want to upgrade their ride. You can browse their pre-owned selection today online. Just follow the link. Look at that at Sherwood Dodge, 17 Rams in stock. That's the back-to-back-to-back Motor Trend Truck of the Year at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. And our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that as the weather gets better, it's blizzard season, and that includes the very cherry chip blizzard treat. That's one of the featured blizzards on right now at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. So this story out of Vancouver, this is one of those stories where I thought, I want to I put this in front of the Real Talk audience. It's not, it's not necessarily a super controversial story, or is it? I don't know. I can't decide personally how I feel about this. I think that's what a lot of people are going to say when we bring it up. So when you bring it up, like it's just people are, some people are torn on this issue. Like it, we know we have to do something, but how do we do it properly? So as our cities expand. Yeah. Habitat becomes more and more human influenced. The age old. And what are the animals supposed to do about it? Right. Exactly. It's why you get, well, raccoons are probably a bad example, Mm -hmm. but it's why some species are threatened. It's why some other species thrive in cities, but Mm -hmm. they become a nuisance. And that includes the mighty Canada goose. You know, Canada geese poop every 12 minutes. (laughs) I did a little research on this because I wanted to be able to present the facts, just the facts. Canada geese poop every 12 minutes, and it becomes a lot in cities with public spaces like parks and and dog walking areas and green spaces and beaches like in Vancouver. It's estimated that 3,000 non-migrating Canada geese call Vancouver home. Mm -hmm. 3,000 of them. And the Vancouver Parks Board says that that number is unsustainable. It's mm-hmm. a population they've got to control. And that's why they're targeting nests to, to, to do what they can to curb the Canada goose population in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're asking people to help them locate goose nests this spring so they can slow the surge. Uh, they say that the problem is the geese are snacking on the youngest grass in the newly seeded fields. So it's yeah. impacting things like soccer fields and the like. They're digging holes next to sprinklers. And of course, the droppings polluting outdoor pools. They can mm-hmm. cause slips on sports fields. You think of what you're slipping into. People don't love it. 
And of course, geese, as everybody knows, can become pretty aggressive during mating season too. So they're asking people to help them locate nests. This is where it gets. So when the geese step away, they can snag the eggs. And then so as not to psychologically damage the geese, they will replace the eggs with eggs that do not have reproductive capabilities. They're eggs that were seized last year that have been placed in a freezer. Mm-hmm. And so they're not going to hatch. There will not be goose 2.0 in that goose family. So I'm reading this. and I'm going, I wonder how people would feel about this, especially maybe in a city like Vancouver that tends to be a little more sympathetic to, to environmental and, and other animal related stories 100 percent, right how's the land with you i knew you were gonna ask me well, i'm, I'm curious throw this at johnny today. curious well i get why vancouver's a problem like you know geese they like warm you know marshy wet areas and i think that's the problem uh you know and i've seen people saying that that's the best thing we can do is kind of push them towards those areas and create less areas like that near places where we live but that gets really like, especially here in Alberta, where they've got the man-made ponds in in every little community. So I'm not sure. And I knew you were going to throw this to me. I don't have a right answer for this, but I do feel very strangely about baby egg hunting. This is just it just sounds like you wouldn't sign up to do that job. It, <sighs> never. But it's, I mean, would any? I, well, and and this goes back to so so Wyatt and our little guy and I were reading these these books uh, about animals. He's fascinated, right? Loves loves to. He's he's got this. By the way, this one book that he just got from the library. It's amazing. It it pits different animals against each other, and it's like who would win in a fight between mm-hmm. a killer whale and a great white shark, or who would win the one we were reading last night between a wolverine and a Tasmanian devil. What? Yeah, and That's it gets nice it, and, and and it teaches you all about the animal. It says yeah. like the wolverine's claws look like this, and the the Tasmanian devil's claws look like this, and then it sort of explains how it would play out. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think would win, by the way, in a fight between an alligator and a python? Alligator and a python? Yeah, what would be your guess? I mean, I'm guessing a, a python is is Ooh, quicker, okay. but I, I would say the alligator. Well, see, like always, how many bites? Always go with your gut. How always many? go with. I, I was like alligator for sure. Yeah, no, because the bites, the poison. Well, the alligator doesn't like the texture of the python's skin, so when it bites, ah. it's going to let go. And it also, and this is a kids' book, and it's like because the python doesn't have limbs that are easy to tear off. I'm like, what? It's like our six year olds reading <laughs> this. But anyway, it turns out the python would win. So says yeah. the book. But they were talking about wolverines and how wolverines are a threatened species. And then the book was explaining how back in the day, like decades and decades ago, provincial and federal governments used to pay mm-hmm. like for the, for the coal for people to get rid of them because they were pests because they're killing farm animals and the like. But their habitat has been eliminated as mm-hmm. humankind's footprint has spread. And right? of course, they're a predatory animal. And when you get rid of less of those, the smaller, weaker animals like geese, I'm sure they're being they're overrunning these populations because there's less predators out yeah. there. So it's not unusual to see uh, coyote calls. And obviously, I mean, yep. I remember talking to a rancher once that was like, you know, people, he, he you know, he was kind of joking. He, he came at it from the right angle, I thought. But uh, facetiously, he's he was talking about ah the bleeding hearts and all this. People that get upset about us, you know, protecting our cows mm-hmm. from coyotes. They get upset at us shooting coyotes on our ranch. He said, until you've seen a coyote attacking a calf that's not even yet fully born, it's like halfway born, yeah. halfway out of its mom and the coyotes are already circling. Yeah. He says, unless you've seen that and been trying to protect your herd against that, I don't really want to hear it. So so we understand that po- animal population management is a thing and is necessary, 
But at the same time, I'm a little surprised it's happening in Vancouver. Can we do a whole show on this? Because I feel like we need experts. Like, I know, and I've read a lot about this, but I'm not an expert, that calling can work. And it can also have the adverse effect where, you know, especially wolves, coyotes, those are very smart, adaptable animals. And when you try to call them, they get smarter, they hide better, they learn to move around. Uh, so it can have, uh, you know, the opposite effect. But uh, yeah. Yeah, coyotes are. We need it. We need a panel. We need a panel for this for sure. (laughs) It's not a bad idea. We do. All right, we'll add it to our list. I like this from David, who says my grandma found a uh, Canadian goose nest on her balcony, and they're absolutely bringing her joy as she watches them sit on the eggs. She's eagerly awaiting the six babies to hatch. That from David. So you go. David Hmm. will not be placing a call to the (laughs) parks board. To have those eggs shaken up on his grandma's balcony. Let us know what you think. Sincerely, I'd love to know where people land on this, how you feel about this. And and this is a story that that we'll follow up on. If, if you show that interest, Real Talkers, a lot of times uh, you play a big role in the editorial content of this show and where it goes. Before we sign off for today, every, I mean, every single week, um, and it's the first show of the week. So on the long weekend, it lands on a Tuesday. Our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy, you can get a free quote on solar today, by the way, at kubienergy.ca. They give us a chance to focus on a story or stories that have filled our buckets, stories of people paying it forward, uh, stories of people going above and beyond with random acts of kindness, and oftentimes a movement that occurs with small beginnings. It's a feature we call Positive Reflections. And in the spotlight today, the minute that I saw this tweet, I thought, I've got to share this with our real talkers. If you want to read along or if you want to learn more about this, if you want to share this with your friends, check out Richard Clark's profile on Twitter. He tweets at rclarky. He says, a wee thread about a young boy in the tweet that got away. Three weeks ago, my youngest, Gabriel, who's 12, came home upset. His love of woodwork was not deemed cool, nor was only having six followers on his Instagram. There's Gabriel working, doing an amazing job with these projects. 12 years old and six followers on Instagram. Richard says his dad, me, well, I was upset too. It's hard watching your kids battling with life, but what to do? Mom wasn't around, so dad, the impulsive fool that he is, instead reached out to the lovely people on Twitter. Maybe he could persuade some of them to follow his son. So he did. He said, Twitter people, I don't know how many of you are on Instagram, but I'm looking for a favor. My 12-year-old loves woodwork, spends hours on his lathe making bowls, creating chopping boards, and he sells them to save up for a mountain bike. Now, Gabriel was aiming for 60 followers. He says that's the magic number in the teen world when your Instagram page is apparently no longer deemed an embarrassment. So he posted the tweet and he got on with cooking tea. He, by the way, is on Instagram at Clarky underscore woodwork says Richard, but then something very odd happened. Followers started appearing slowly at first, but then in the hundreds, and finally his dad and son looked on in astonishment in their thousands, and by the time Gabriel went to bed, he had over 6,000 new followers, and when he woke up the next morning, he had 33,000, and it kept going, and by the end of the weekend, he had a quarter million and was overwhelmed by the tidal wave of kindness and support. But not only that, Gabriel had 20,000 orders for bowls and chopping boards, which he figured would take him 32 years to fulfill. And now the media was coming calling. He said it was a lot to take in for this wee lad of just 12 years old. And so, Gabriel was certain of one thing. He wanted to share the kindness. So instead of carving 20,000 bowls, he would carve just one, a special one, his bowl for Ukraine. 
And this 12-year-old and his dad set up a Just Giving page for the Save the Children's Ukraine appeal. And Gabriel set a target of 5,000 pounds, like $8,000 or so. The fundraiser would stay live until Easter when one donor would be chosen at random to win this beautiful bowl for Ukraine. Within 24 hours of going live, says Richard, you wonderful, kind-hearted people blew our goal out of the water, donating over 50,000 pounds the press even more excited. So Gabriel gave up a chunk of his holiday to run around doing interviews in the hope of raising even more funds, says Richard. And so here we are together. We've raised tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, I'm not going to read the number he has on his tweet because I'm going to update it in just a second. Okay. Donations coming in from all over the world. The little story coming to a close, Richard says, but how it ends is up to you. It's your story. Certainly, we could all pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. Save the children already enormously grateful for the very real difference this money would make. But what if there was another ending, Richard says? What if we threw caution to the wind, let go of our cynicism, and really went for it? What if we blew this silly tale of a small boy and his bowl out of the water for one last swing shot around the moon? He says we're all so tired of COVID and war and division. What if we came together in one big, generous, soppy, silly last hurrah and retweeted this and all chipped in to save the children? He says it's up to you, lovely people, as to whether lightning strikes a third time. Either way, a heartfelt thanks. You've already changed so many lives. And if you do want to follow a little lad making bowls and other things from wood, feel free to follow on Instagram, Clarky underscore Woodwork. Well, check this out. This is the fundraising page at JustGiving.com. Gabriel's Bowl for Ukraine has raised almost 5,000% of its goal. Wow. A total of 246,000 pounds. Johnny, that's more than 400 grand. Atta boy. From the little 12-year-old that started this all with six Instagram followers. Now, if that's not reason for positive reflection... I don't know, I don't what, know is. what is, right? You can send us your stories for consideration of inclusion and positive reflections to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And a reminder, you can get your free quote on solar today by visiting kubienergy.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to check in with Calgary's new poet laureate. This guy is a gem. And on Thursday, it's Earth Day. We'll also follow the stories making news, including updates from Ukraine and other things that demand real talk. Thanks for making time for us on this Tuesday. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Sterlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Carmen Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.